0: Our guest for today is Elizabeth Mitchell. She is an author uh, of several books, uh, including her newest book. It's called Lincoln's Lie, A True Civil War Caper Through Fake News, Wall Street and the White House. Elizabeth, we're very glad to have you on the podcast today.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yes. So one of the things I enjoyed about your book is that you take on a topic that is so often associated with our current political landscape. And that topic is fake news. And we learned from your book that fake news is nothing new. If anything, news might have been even more questionable or fake before and your book is about the civil war era and there's one paper uh that you cite that says quote the present they're talking about the civil war era is the present the present is emphatically an age of lies we have lying news lying journals lying histories and lying prophecies so what did you learn about fake news from that era
1: well first of all doesn't that quote make you feel better
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> I-
1: I felt that, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I found reassuring about doing this research was to realize that this sort of idea that we're the worst that ever came along is not actually true um, and that everyone's had to sort of fight these battles and they come up with different solutions and we can learn from those. So that that helped me a lot, but I, I was very surprised how much um, President Lincoln played games with the press and then how much, you know, the press was uh, often questioning the, you know, the material that was coming in and the public had to be very canny uh, consumers of news.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned President Lincoln. The book centers around events during Lincoln's administration. There have been thousands upon thousands of books written about Lincoln, uh, why did you write about him specifically? And, and you already alluded to this, but what did you learn about him that we didn't already know?
1: Well, I had originally come across this story when doing research for my last book, which was Liberty's Torch: The Great Adventure to Build the Statue of Liberty. That one was also based on something where I thought that I knew the history. I thought it was a gift from the Americans to the French. I mean, from the French to the American governments, and that was not actually correct. It was one artist who who came over with the crazy idea to build a colossus. But the the um, it, it, I came I stumbled across the story of Lincoln. Uh, there being this fake proclamation published in the world that Lincoln had kind of gone crazy and arrested everybody and, um, put military in the newspaper offices. And that was so different than anything I knew of him that I thought it was worth investigating. So, uh, I did begin that investigation and found that, you know, it had so many crazy twists and turns and it was this kind of pathway through everything that was going on then. And then, as you've said already, like the echoes with what we were going through now were so pronounced that it seemed to me a story well worth telling.
0: Right, and Lincoln emerges in your book as really a master manipulator of the press and a keen student of public opinion, and there's a quote that you include of his saying, "Public sentiment is everything. With it nothing can fail, against it nothing can succeed. Whoever molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes and pronounces judicial decisions." So how did you how did Lincoln get so savvy? with the media and how did he use the media for his purposes?
1: Well, I think we have this idea that Lincoln, you know, was the sort of uh hard scrabble country lawyer who, you know, lived in the, you know, came out of a log cabin and then just sort of uh was anointed by the public to be president. But in fact, there was uh he had made very concerted efforts to become president. Um including that, you know, in at one point he buys a newspaper that's out in the center of the country in 1860, which is his election year. um, And it's a German language newspaper. And that vote was going to be very important in the election. So he buys it secretly. It's a contract where if they say anything against the Republican Party, he can kill it. Um, and I thought, wow, that's wild <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that he did that. Um, second of all, he um, would write anonymously to the newspapers, both as a lawyer and then um, you know, beyond that. Um, and, uh, and there's an incident where he actually takes on this pseudonym Rebecca to, to, uh, to just criticize in the most extreme ways um, a political opponent of his in Illinois. And, uh, you know, it ends up where he's actually challenged to a duel when the guy figures out who wrote the piece. Um, so, yeah, I, I was I was very surprised that he did all that. Also, the, when he had this, the Douglas debates, um, he had those transcribed and published, um, knowing that that would do a great deal towards helping his um, reputation. But more, I would say the other thing in that instance instance is. The, he wanted to get the issues out there. So he was very much driven towards the idea of slavery had to be abolished. Um, and let's start the process of getting people to think about it more clearly.
0: Yeah, I, I was very amused at the, the story of Lincoln posing to be a woman named Rebecca. I think that that is a side of Lincoln people don't know about. Uh, that he was kind of taking on this persona makes if I ever see a a pseudonym Rebecca I'm going to be suspicious from now on
1: (laughs) no definitely I mean and and the things that he says in it are pretty extreme I mean he takes on this person's position on the banking system but then he goes on you know to sort of in these series of letters which as it goes on people start to wonder if Mary Todd started to be the person behind them um but he he, uh, you know, criticizes the guy even for philandering. Um, so right. it's, it's wild. Yeah.
0: And as president, you talk about how Lincoln actually uh, had articles ghostwritten and I think a Philadelphia paper as well.
1: Yeah. So he had um, there. I thought there's there's some amazing scholars of Lincoln, obviously, and one of them is Michael Burlingame. And he was able to go piece together the fact that um, some of Lincoln's uh, aides, including a press aide, was writing anonymously for the newspapers as uh, Lincoln was headed towards his inaugural and just praising him. I mean, what a great, honest man this was. Um, and that kind of continued with different members of his uh, administration. And then there's this this correspondence, which it's hard to take it any other way, where the editor of a newspaper in Philadelphia, who is he was a friend of Lincoln's, sends on a copy of this one article to somebody in uh, Lincoln's cabinet and said, in case you missed the president's article in the paper today, I'm enclosing it for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't like, you know, there was no indication it was that it was just purely a policy he would agree with. It was more this is what um has been written by him. Um, so actually, the Michael Burling game and his um, and uh, you know uh, some other scholars are looking into going back and searching with sort of you know digital technology to figure out if they can uh, trace his style in different anonymous pieces. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, th- that's history at its best, right? When you're still uncovering new things, uh, and it's it's almost like investigative uh, journalism. Yeah.
1: Well, actually, I kept thinking while I was doing this, you know, history is a mystery. I mean, and that's and I hope actually that would be the thing that would make people interested in continuing, you know, the search, because there is all sorts of things we don't know and still have to find out. And it requires this kind of detective work in the archives. And we're getting access to newer new archives all the time.
0: Right. Now, this was the era of the telegraph, and that uh, is something that revolutionized the way people communicated to each other. What were the effects of the telegraph on the political landscape?
1: Well, this was one of the things that really compelled me to keep going on this project, because early on, I found that Samuel Morris, who had invented the telegraph um, 30 years before when my book is unfolding, uh, had thought that the telegraph was going to unite the whole country, you know, that this would be this web that would Bring us together, but instead, um, suddenly people could see what the you know viewpoints were of people in other parts of the country, and they realized actually they had nothing in common, mm-hmm. and there was this uh, you know violent partisanship that was going on. And so Samuel Morse was so concerned he started a society to try to uh, bring the country back together, but um, you know clearly wasn't successful.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, obviously the parallel in our age is is the internet where uh, uh, people talked about how wonderful the internet would be when it came out in the 90s, that it would bring people together. But actually, it now people talk about the the, the horrible effects of the internet, and people go on social media and get depressed, and people are angry at each other. And so it, it's uh, there's such a parallel there. This is not the first time that something new and exciting, new technology and exciting, actually had some uh, of the opposite effects.
1: Yes, I, I think that the the it it just is so uh, it is so fascinating to me, because the other thing is that suddenly, right at this stage of it, which, you know, 30 years in with the telegraph, people started to realize how to manipulate information to um, going out. And that's clearly an echo with, you know, the fake things that are put on. Um, Facebook and other places, which, you know, now people are starting to wake up and try and stamp that out. But, uh, you know, we, what's nice to know is that they actually did come up with some some strategies of how they were going to negotiate this new world of information flow. And some of it is you get the feeling when you're doing the research that readers back then were not, um, they were not just knocked silly by the idea that they might have to pursue their information in multiple different um newspapers uh you know that they they couldn't trust fully the first thing they came across um and i think that that's very interesting like that that you could get to this point where people would be a little bit better consumers of the news and hopefully that's where we're
0: headed right now You cover a number of other characters and the three that stick out in the book other than President Lincoln. uh, You talk about Secretary of War uh, Stanton, Edwin Stanton. uh, And then you talk about John Dix. I believe that's his name. John Dix. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, he's a general who's basically charged with um, enforcing an order by President Lincoln uh, on the press. And then you have Joseph Howard, uh, who's a member of the press. So could you just kind of uh, briefly talk about those three people and what you learned, just your impressions of them?
1: Sure. I mean, some of the... Stanton is a fascinating character because um, he was considered just a, a furious, irascible human being, um, who was running the war and Lincoln relied on him entirely. He, he trusted him, uh, implicitly. Uh, and it's interesting because there, when I was going through, I, you would get these quotes from people who worked with Stanton saying, you know, he's the most loathsome human being (laughs) I've ever encountered. And then suddenly, uh, Henry Ward Beecher, who was basically the Billy Graham of his time said, you know, he was soft as a kitten or something like that. You know, he was, he had Mm -hmm. this lovely side to him. I found that a little interesting, but um, he's Stanton is uh, you know, he's, he's brought the telegraph wires all within the war department and, um, he's monitoring everything at all times. Um, then Dix is this guy who, uh, it was interesting to find that he's, sort he's revered in New York, um, because of his past political life and he had been a Democrat, but then he's working for, you know, Lincoln, um, as a general overseeing the sort of New England area and the tri-state area of, um, the country. And, uh, he was a lawyer, he was a businessman, et cetera. Um, and interestingly, I came across the fact that the entire time that he's involved in this uh, incident, he's just dreaming of being able to be posted over to France because he just wants to write his you know, poetic works mm-hmm. and <laughs> translations and such. But he's put in a very difficult spot because Lincoln keeps asking him to do these things which are basically anti-constitutional, which include you know, his suspension of habeas corpus which is the right to a fair trial. He did that very early on in his presidency. And it's, a uh, you know, it's by any kind of legal standard, that should be something that's just in an area where the bullets are flying and you can't get to the courthouse. Um, but he's trying to enforce it across the country. Um, and then the freedom of expression issues. So those are all problematic. And then you have Joseph Howard, who is um, a, a guy who got into the news um, world just by pure, his pure curiosity and his desire to just know everything. And so he's this witty uh, reporter. He was one of the first to sort of do these kinds of letters from a place, like letters from the front or letters from following the Prince of Wales around. Um, and he uh, he's famous ambitious and mischievous. And he's the person who's covering uh, Lincoln from the time that Lincoln is on his train ride to come to Washington for the inaugural. And he's not Above playing games,
0: <laughs> right? And he's someone. As I was reading the book, I, I was thinking this is a guy who you could make a movie out of because he shows up at these very important events. But he also he does things like he just randomly poses as a reporter to cover a strike. He's not a reporter at all, but he just he just does it on a lark. And then another time, he dressed up as a church official just to attend a funeral <laughs> so he could write about yeah. the funeral. And I just I just thought I mean uh yeah it's like it's like uh uh uh, what do you call it it's like a voltaire satire or something like that no
1: he is very he is very much that sort of person and he had a kind of uniform that he wore which was this you know dark somewhat floppy hat and this particularly crisp suit and you know his little mustache and all and goatee and uh it's yeah he has this um this desire. He, he's a cross between weird things because sometimes he just is speaking so eloquently about the role of the media, you know, the press and what, you know, it's it how it has to uh, help uncover all kinds of ills of the society so that the powerful will pay attention. But on the other hand, he, he'll do all kinds of nutty things. Like the, at one point he's bored at one of his, um, he's been fired from the New York Times and he's bored at his um, post in at, uh, Brooklyn Eagle. And he starts writing this horrific, you know, review of this one play, uh, accusing the person of not, uh, using their identity when they, when they actually, you know, wrote the play. And then he's meanwhile using a pseudonym to make the critique, you know? And so it's all this insider game, joking around kind of stuff, but also, you know, somewhat dangerous, particularly in the case of when Lincoln's going to his inaugural, uh, Joseph Howard, there's a, uh, learns that, uh, Lincoln has left the train in, in Harrisburg in the middle of the night and has snuck away um, to uh, to get to DC swiftly because there's um, the assassin an assassination attempt um, in the offing. Uh, and Howard, hearing that information and being not allowed to go out and do any reporting, sits in his hotel room and makes up this crazy costume that Lincoln wears to get out, you know, in disguise. And it's a cape and a scotch cap and the scotch cap being a little tiny hat compared to you know, Lincoln's uh, usual costume. Mm-hmm. And uh, it gets picked up by the newspapers, the uh, cartoonists in particular. They spread it everywhere. And everyone's just thinking what a laughingstock Lincoln is, that he would creep away in the dark in this disguise to go be president. And like, what kind of president is this? And so it was actually seriously damaging to Lincoln, and Lincoln greatly regretted that he had snuck away because it gave the opportunity for these kinds of scurrilous stories to be put out about him right when he needed to unify the country.
0: Right. And I remember hearing about that story, and you see the political cartoons of Lincoln escaping in the night, wearing it looks like he's portrayed with pajamas or something like that. And I I, I didn't know that this was the story, (laughs) that it was basically this journalist who just kind of embellished because that was the nature of of his job.
1: Yeah, and the thing is that he's writing for the New York Times, so when the other papers saw this detail, they suddenly were calling back their copy and the cartoonists were actually making adjustments in the, you know, press rooms to to draw it this way because they trusted Howard since he was the, you know, the New York Times' guy. So, uh, it, yeah, it had a lot of power.
0: Right, right. So, your story hinges on a proclamation that was released that caused a great deal of trouble without giving too much away. Uh, what happened there?
1: So the proclamation um, it, you know, it, it it's, On May 18th, it's 3 in the morning, and it's dark of night, and this young AP guy, Associated Press um, messenger, it appears, is running through the streets, and he's going newspaper to newspaper, dropping off this proclamation from the president. And the editors are gone for the night, so you just have the people who are running the presses there to decide whether it should go in or not. And everybody thinks that an emergency announcement for the president must get in the paper. So... Two of the papers immediately print it, and um, it causes crazy consternation in New York the next day because it says that the union's in horrible shape, that the military efforts in the recent weeks have gone worse than they had expected, um, and that 400,000 men must immediately go to the front. And there had been the draft riots the year before in New York, which um, were... You know, I feel like this is part of the history that's been played down too much. But that was a brutal, brutal five days where the white residents of the city rose up and went rampaging through the city, beating up everybody they could find, setting fire to everything. Um, You know, uh, they lynched many black people uh, and just unbelievable brutality. Uh, And it had to ultimately be put down by military coming back from the front to stop it. So everyone was afraid something like that could happen again. So a draft suddenly dropped like this into the city had that threat. And then there was the fact that there was this ship that was headed over to um, Europe and the ship brought the mail and the information of what was happening in the war to Europe. England and France both wanted to recognize the Confederacy because they just wanted to get down to business and have these two countries who they were trading with, etc. And so that ship was supposed to sail at noon. So there was this ticking clock trying to figure out, hey, why did Lincoln send this right now? Did he send it? You know, if he didn't send it, who sent it? Um, And there's why, you know, telegraph messages going back and forth to D.C. trying to ascertain whether this is truth or fiction. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot at stake.
0: Right. And And when you talk about a lot at stake, obviously it was an election year as well. And this was kind of seen as a barometer of how the war effort was going. So you have those kind of implications going on.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the Republican nomine- uh, convention was going to be a few weeks, uh, you know, in the future. And so and there were people who were who were hoping that they might actually be nominated as the Republican candidate because people weren't convinced that Lincoln could actually carry uh, the ticket because there was so much criticism of the war effort and, you know, how it was being conducted. And so. Uh, yeah. So there was, so there was, you know, people wondered, is this, since it appeared in two Democrat newspapers, is it that they're trying to damage Lincoln? On the other hand, the Democrat newspapers thought is Lincoln doing, dropping this fake news just to make us look foolish and be able to arrest us and shut us down right when that, um, you know, crucial uh, moment when they'd be able to critique uh, the Republican Party uh, was upon them.
0: Right now. Uh... You show Lincoln doing some pretty controversial things uh, during his presidency, during the Civil War. Lincoln is consistently rated among the greatest presidents, if not the greatest presidents, but you show him seizing telegraph messages, as you mentioned, suspending habeas, uh, censoring, shutting down newspapers, arresting their, uh, their editors and their staff, uh, what uh, what are your thoughts on all of these things? Is this something that uh, kind of makes you think differently about Lincoln as far as his his greatness or is this kind of I mean, his argument was he, he it sounded like to a large extent he kind of owned these actions. He basically there's that famous quote where he said yeah. you have to you have to uh, uh, it's it's like where you have to cut off the limb to save the whole body that that argument to to you know, ignore one law to save the whole law. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I mean, I think it's, I think it really needs to be addressed, you know, and understood when people are studying this particular history, because the thing is, you know, I think when we're taught about this in school, we basically think it's the people who were for slavery versus the ones who were against it. And so, you know, obviously there is, you know, a large portion of the, you know, of the fights were about that particular issue. But then within the people who were against slavery and wanted it abolished, there was a lot of tension of this idea of, is he just using this to be an authoritarian tyrant, you know? Now, I don't think actually that, uh, I actually, I come away from the entire thing thinking Lincoln is not, at his heart, he's not a corrupt individual. He's not, like, I, I saw no evidence of you know, ego or his own profiteering off of it. Um, people close to him did profit off the war, uh, but uh, I don't think that was his intention. I think he, as he says, and this is a fascinating little thing that also <laughs> could be investigated. He says in one of his open letters that um, that for thirty years people there were people plotting against the union, and they managed to do this in all sorts of covert ways and you know no one was stopping them and now here we are at this moment where you have to you have to stop those efforts so he believed he was doing it for you know all the it was every means uh necessary um Mm -hmm. but i think i think it's i think we should be looking at it all uh, always right i mean trying to understand what Uh, what we, our country has been up against in the past and what we can learn from how to fight those battles. I mean, in this case, so many heroes cropped up from different areas to make sure he got reined in. And that was a great accomplishment. I mean, I think, you know, we can thank them for the lawyers and the reporters and, you know, everyone else who, who stood up and said, this is not um, within our constitution and you, you know, you need to be stopped.
0: Right. And I I think that that's one of those things that there are people that are going to believe that what Lincoln did was justified during the Civil War uh, as far as censoring the news and blocking papers from using mails to distribute their papers um, and arresting uh, suspected disloyal people. Uh, And then there are people that are going to call him a tyrant, and so, uh, I, I think that's a very fascinating element, a, a complication of Lincoln's legacy. Uh, now, mm-hmm. you just mentioned uh, profiting off of the war, and, and you do a very, uh, you, you do a very interesting job as far as describing what that situation was like with the gold market. Could you could you talk about that?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I had never understood either how how what a desperate financial situation our country was in in 1864. Um, You basically they were spending two point five million dollars a day on the war, but they had all those men at the front. So they weren't producing anything. Um, And then you had um, the greenback had been introduced uh, early in his presidency, and it was uh, basically like our dollar. Um, but at, at the end of the first, his first year in office, they they separated it from having gold direct gold value. So before you could go and you could hand it in and you would get gold back, you know, in a certain time period, um, they stopped that. And so then gold became just a commodity that was going up and down. So basically, if the war was going in favor of the Union. Then the greenback would be pretty solid and gold would be lowered. But if something uh went very well for the Confederacy, gold would go skyrocketing because it would suggest the greenback would never be um worth anything. It would just be paper from a, you know, a country that no longer exists. Um but yet gold was recognized around the world and would always have this kind, you know, that would be valuable. So uh, people were playing with that a lot. And so there would be information that was real, like, you know, this battle went well for the Confederates, and that would get telegraphed right up to New York and buys would immediately go in. Um, And sometimes they were manipulating the information, you know, putting in things that were not true, so as to manipulate the market. Now, I think this is, you know, interesting, because even just last week, J.P. Morgan uh, was, Find 920 million dollars or something because they had been doing putting in fake bids on the on gold just to boost them the value um and then canceling them before they went through Mm. so it's like you know we haven't learned a lot
0: right right (laughs) Yeah that that's fascinating and uh I think it it kind of shows during those situations uh the incentives that people have uh and just the difficulties in prosecuting a war when you have those kind of incentives going on.
1: Yeah, I mean they I, it was it was a truly desperate situation so I described these things where the Treasury secretary who I think you know one could wonder at his wisdom <laughs> often um, but uh, Salmon Chase had had come up with this idea okay, I'm going to get Congress to allow me to dump gold from the US Treasury onto the market to drive the price down so that then the the greenback would go up in value but you know, it, it it could do it could do a little something for, you know, brief couple of minutes or hours, but it didn't do anything over the long term. And then you unleashed all the uh you know the federal holdings of gold. So then the the federal government didn't have this thing that had retained value. So I mean it was quite disastrous.
0: Right. Unintended consequences. Yes. So uh you write about President Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, and she famously was known for her mood swings, intense mood swings and other. She's been psychologically analyzed a lot. What did you find out about her that that we didn't know already?
1: Well, I um, I didn't know the extent to which her insecurities had gotten her into severe trouble. So um, she she's clearly someone who's quite brilliant, and you can see why they were a match because there, there were few, you know, there were women weren't emboldened to, to speak their minds and have political views and all those sorts of things. And she definitely did. Um, and she's very sympathetic to, to people who are suffering. I mean, she's she was going to the hospital wards and reading to the soldiers who were injured or, you know, writing a letter home to the their loved ones or what have you, and was very critical of uh, Ulysses S. Grant saying that he was a butcher, that he was just sending people to the war to the front to be killed, and ha- didn't have a great strategy. It was just throw bodies at the um, war. So there's things like that that are very sympathetic about her, but she was um, crippled by this insecurity that because she was from the uh, Midwest, that she would never be accepted in DC society, and so she was just spending and shopping as you know fast as she could to have the fashions of the day and you know to look right for every event and things like that and it was putting her in this kind of colossal debt and she you know you can trace through much of his presidency her her scramble to try to somehow make good on those debts without him ever knowing uh, that she had put herself in that
0: position. So things came to a head in court where Lincoln's government basically faced off against the state of New York led by uh, governor Horatio Seymour. That's right. Horatio Seymour. Yeah. Uh, what happened in that situation?
1: Well, so, um, so when he, when Lincoln went in and seized the newspaper offices and just held them for days, uh, many in New York and many in the press were outraged because he was taking over a private business without any proof of, you know, that these people were guilty. Um, he, uh, you know, there was no fair trial and there was no even warrant, you know, so, uh, people were, were just said, you know, this has to be fought through in their case, every means as well. The governor of New York um, was a Democrat and he had often sparred with Lincoln along the way about various issues, including quotas for the draft, et cetera. And so he ordered his um, he, he ordered a grand jury hearing about the case when the grand jury. Heard it. They just said it's inexpedient to look into it, basically saying, you know, it's not a good time. <laughs> and that's just not really a legitimate answer to a question about, you know, the law. So he went back and said, OK, I need my New York attorney general to bring the case again. And so they arrested General Dix, who was um, Lincoln's general, uh, as we said, overseeing the um, New England and tri-state sort of area. Um, and brought him to court uh, under charges that he had, you know, th- made this um, illegal arrest. And so it became this this very high-profile case where the best lawyers um, were arguing it on both sides of the case. You know, it was going to decide what are the powers of the presidency. Is ha- suspending habeas corpus um, legal? Uh, and, you know, it was quite, people were quite riveted by what the outcome would be.
0: Right. Now, your book touches on a lot of topics that have relevance today. Obviously, fake news. Uh, There's uh, stuff about civil liberties in there. And it reminds me a lot of uh, during the Bush administration and into the Obama administration, people talked about the issue of civil liberties as a result of the war on terror, uh, and even detaining enemy combatants, something that has been dealt with since 9-11 and in your book, uh, was being dealt with as well. Uh, what do you think with all that said, what are the lessons in your, the story of your book, uh, that, that, uh, that, that story has to offer for today?
1: Well, I think the biggest one is, you know, check the president. You must always be checking the president because even if you look at it from the benign point of view, Uh, The president is trying to make something happen. Right. They have some agenda that, you know, hopefully for good, you know, sometimes not. But they uh, and so they're just trying to do whatever they can with the powers that they have to make that happen. But they're not paying attention to all of the other stakeholders in the, in the thing. And so it's up to the people and to lawyers and, you know, you know, civil liberties lawyers in particular to constantly be questioning. And I think that, you know, even in this presidency, they've done a pretty good job of, uh, of, you know, halting, uh, many of the decisions to say is this does this align with what we have committed to as a as a country so i think that's the biggest lesson and we will never be done i think that's people have this idea like oh we're the worst that ever came about (laughs) but the but i don't think that's the case i think democracy is a very unique um delicate uh exotic thing you know and and you have to spend a lot of time tending it you know it's like you can't leave your yard you know, untended, or you're going to have a problem. Or as I heard someone say recently, you know, it, maybe some elements of it are like taking out the garbage. But, you know, if you don't take out the garbage, some terrible things could happen. <laughs> and so I think it's like that. You have to just get into this idea that it's a constant uh, effort.
0: Right. Well, the book is called Lincoln's Lie, a True Civil War Caper through Wall, uh, Through fake news, Wall Street and the White House. Uh, Elizabeth Mitchell, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. For more shows you might enjoy, I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.